The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Our scripture text this morning is found in John chapter 15. So if you have a copy of the Bible, find John 15 and verses 18 to 25. You are about to hear a prophetic word. By that I don't mean a word about prophecy related to the end times. I mean a thus saith the Lord kind of message. From this text, John 15 and verse 18. If the world hates you, Jesus continued, Know that it has hated me before hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Let's pray. Father, as Pastor Bill prayed earlier, expand our vision of you. Help us to focus on you. And thank you for your word and our pastor's work at sharing it with us this morning. Bless him, I pray, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The founder and executive director of Frontline Missions International, Tim uh, Cassie, wrote, Jesus' words to his disciples still speak today. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I've looked into the faces of these lambs. Sometimes their faces are scarred from knife attacks. Sometimes they are filled with wide-eyed fear like the Christian schoolgirls I met in Pakistan who had just survived a night of terror as their homes and churches were looted and burned by a Muslim mob. I remember the bruised, swollen face of an Iranian brother named Muhammad living in a refugee camp in Greece. When Muhammad openly professed Christ as his only savior, he was badly beaten and kicked out of the camp. The pastor who was discipling Muhammad told him not to return 
to the refugee camp and said he'd find a safe place for him. But Muhammad refused, saying, If I am afraid to go back and face my people as a Christian, what would that say about my Lord? So Muhammad returned as a lamb among wolves and as a lamb like the Lamb of God. Jesus, with saving purpose, went to the cross as a lamb to the slaughter. And so Muhammad, newborn Christian as he was, could return and stand with the marks of his beating, knowing that a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. We hear these kinds of stories, and as American Christians, it's really hard to relate, isn't it? It's hard to relate to such a godly attitude that's more concerned for the reputation of Jesus instead of asking, why me? Instead of asking, why me, this man asks, why not me? I'm a servant. I'm Jesus' servant. Our Western comforts really are unusual. We don't often realize that. They're not the norm for Christians around the world or throughout history. Jesus, in his farewell discourse, that's what we're still in the midst of, he's been preparing his disciples, assuring them with with positive, hope-filled promises concerning his care for them, his care for them through through the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he's told them of the positive blessing of of abiding in him and that he will make them fruitful. But now Jesus tells, tells his disciples some more. He tells them the rest of the story. Unlike much of our, sadly, much of our evangelism today, Jesus tells them about the cost of being his disciple. He braces them for the inevitable reality of being hated being hated and persecuted because of their association with him. Jesus reminds them, as he did in the 13th chapter, that being a servant means that they'll truly follow him. As as Jesus humbly serves, they're to humbly serve. And since he is hated and persecuted, then, because they're connected to Jesus, they too will be hated and persecuted by the world this world system. And even though we're a couple thousand years removed, we should expect really the same. If we are servants, because it's about the relationship that we have to Jesus. If we are servants, if we are his disciples, if we're friends of Jesus, we should expect the same in our lives. Since the world hated Jesus to the point of murdering him, since they were threatened by his message and his miracles and wanted to silence him, then why on earth wouldn't the same world system also want to do away with anyone who reminds them of Jesus, reminds them of him, or actually is threatened by him, by us, threatened because the enjoyment of sin, and being confronted with the truth of God. Jesus said that if we're 
truly going to follow him, then there will be a cost that we must face. And we're not used to that. We really are unique. We, especially Americans, might wonder, but I'm a nice person. I love people. I, I, you know, I'm helpful to people. Why would anyone ever hate me? Well, if they do, hopefully it's not about you. If they do, hopefully it's not about you. Hopefully it's about Jesus and people's inability to be with you without thinking of him. In his book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul tells a, um, about an unusual golf game. Apparently an, an ex, it was a tradition where the ex-golf champion was given this prize. Part of his prize was to play in this this foursome that included Jack Nich- he, Jack Nicholas, um, Billy Graham, and the President of the United States. So that's a, it's a pretty powerful foursome playing golf. And so he tells this story, R.C. writes, So they went out on the course and played this practice round. When they came in, a friend of mine was there, and he went up to the, this golfer, this, the champion, and said, hey, what was it like playing with Billy Graham Jack and the President of the United States? And this golfer was furious. And he responded in anger, I hated it. I didn't need to have Billy Graham shoving religion down my throat for 18 holes of golf. And he stormed off in a huff and went over to the practice tee and took out his driver and just started pounding balls down the, the driving range one after another, in fury, releasing all of his anger. And so my friend went over and calmly sat and watched until the bucket of balls disappeared. And when the golfer came up, my friend said, Gee, so Billy really came on strong, huh? And the golfer said, No. No, actually, Billy never said a word about religion. I just had a bad day. Here was a man who spent um, here was a man who spent this time with Billy Graham, RC continues to write, who is one of the most gracious human beings you'll ever meet. And Billy Graham didn't say a word about Christianity. Yet this person was feeling uncomfortable. RC concludes, people are uncomfortable in our presence, not because we're holy but because we represent the one who is. We represent Jesus. And some of what you experience will be maybe just awkwardness here in America. And as our culture is changing, maybe it's going to be more than a little awkward silence. Maybe it's going to be more animosity as well. So those in the dark want to live in the dark. They don't like being exposed by Jesus and those who remind them of him. And wasn't this really at the heart of the very first murder? Did did Abel do anything wrong? Wasn't he just a hard worker who brought a right sacrifice to God? Why would doing right upset Cain? And what's the problem with Jesus' 
feeding the hungry, healing the sick. He never sinned. So why would anyone be mad at him? Jesus says in verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Jesus makes reference here to King David in the Psalms. And ultimately, David's experience in writing the psalm prophesied concerning Jesus. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. In Psalm 69, this has been true throughout human history because, let's face it, God's word is true. All have sinned. And because sinners like to sin, they hate the God who exposes and threatens what they like. So ultimately, it's really about God. And since Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, his, his coming confronts us in an ultimate way. Jesus said, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen, now they have seen and hated both me and my father. If he had not come, if he had not come and dwelt among them, if Jesus never came as God the Son, doing all of these works that speak to who he is and ultimately reveal God to us, God in the flesh, they wouldn't be guilty of the sin of rejecting him. Oh, they'd still be guilty of sin and condemned, but this is really an ultimate revelation. They would be guilty of this greater ultimate sin of rejecting God's grace in the person of his son, Jesus. Because Jesus came and taught and did the things that he did, he made it obvious. And so their guilt of sin is an ultimate sin that hates and rejects God. Jesus is the light of the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Cain was jealous and exposed by Abel's right sacrifice. John the Baptist, another witness to the light of Jesus, speaks the truth concerning King Herod's sin, and it results in his execution. There is hatred without cause, hatred for no wrong done, hatred simply for being a light. People love the darkness rather than the light. It's like those Bugs that you see when you lift up a board or a rock in your yard, they want to stay in the dark. They can't stand the light of the sun. And when they're exposed to it, they scatter back into the dark. It all begins really with God. People hate God because his presence threatens the sin that they enjoy. And so they hate his son who came to seek and to save the lost and reveal God to them. And so they'll hate those who are in Christ, who are told to go and make disciples of him. It's all connected. It's all like, it's all like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden, like bugs clinging to the darkness, ashamed, avoiding the exposing presence of God. 
and his son who is the light of the world and us, his people who are to be light as well. Jesus is the light of the world. And so the reaction is we'd better put out the light. If we're going to continue enjoying our darkness, we better put out the light. So when we see the obvious and even violent persecution that Christians face in other parts of the world, we shouldn't be confused. It all makes sense. It's been going on since these first disciples who rightly represented Jesus and proclaimed his gospel. It shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us in America. In fact, what ought to surprise us is that we've been spared the violence for the most part. We've only received uncomfortable silence and maybe, maybe a verbal attack. And what, really ought, what we really ought to consider is this. Has our lack of persecution over the lifetime of our country, given us a distorted view of what it means to follow Christ? Has our lack of persecution throughout the lifetime of our country given us a distorted view of what it means to follow Christ? John Piper describes this in a really provocative way. He said, The Christian church in America suffers from about 350 years of dominance and prosperity. I want you to focus on that sentence. It's an unusual choice of words. We're suffering from dominance and prosperity, not things that you typically relate to suffering. And he goes on to to explain this. He says, what I mean by dominance is that in most of American history, being Christian has been viewed by the wider culture as normal and good and patriotic and culturally acceptable and even beneficial. And what I mean by prosperity is that being Christian has generally resulted in things going well for us as American Christians. Since the Christian ethos has been dominant, it has also been a pathway to success. And what I mean by suffering now from 350 years of dominance and prosperity is that this has deeply ingrained in us a massively unbiblical mindset, namely a mindset of at-homeness, at-homeness in this world and in this age. This has not been good for us. We are suffering from it, prosperous though we be. Really interesting. What Piper is getting at is that we assume that being a good Christian means that things should go well for us. That's what we've grown accustomed to. That we should be well thought of and successful. So for us in America, we've, we've conflated these general benefits. You know, there's wisdom. There are principles in Scripture but we've conflated the benefits that come from those truths or these spin-off blessings. We, We conflate them with what it means to be a Christian. So we think, again, the Bible speaks in Proverbs and a lot of places, wisdom, literature, do this, and you can generally expect this. Here's good principles for living. If you act like a Christian, then you'll live morally. And you won't 
get some disease because your lifestyle is moral. If you act like a Christian, then you're going to work hard and be thrifty. And so you won't suffer from poverty and you'll do well in business. If you act like a Christian, then you'll be kind and generous. And so certainly there will be people who respect you. And so we, we look at these spin-off blessings as what it means to be a Christian. Instead of Christ and his gospel being the, the ultimate goal at any cost, we, because we've grown accustomed to these blessings, feel very much at home in this world. While those being persecuted in other countries have a much clearer understanding of the world system that Jesus describes. They really get what he's talking about. And amazingly, we, we hear of these Christians in other parts of the world and typically hear that they're praying for us. Here they're living in violent persecution and they're praying for us because, what, they, they probably understand this, what Piper is describing here. That we, we don't, our faith might be a bit shallow. We don't understand. And the answer is not that we pray for persecution, but that we pray for a strong faith. You know, it's not that, oh, I hope we get suffering and persecution. Lord, please give us suffering. No. If he sovereignly chooses to do so, he does so for our good. But what we ought to pray for is a strong faith, trusting that whatever climate that we live in, whatever he sovereignly brings, that we'll be faithful. To pray for boldness in sharing the good news, to have right expectations, that we're not surprised when we, like Jesus, are hated without cause. And I suppose if you, you know, if you're one that, that really wants to experience some, some hatred, um, here's a suggestion for you. Go down to stand out in front of Planned Parenthood. You'll probably experience some hatred there, lovingly shining the light on our country's greatest evil. As you tell the truth about human life being precious and valuable, because that little baby at the moment of conception is being knit together by God, precious and valuable, made in his image. So if you want to feel that kind of, just a taste of that, that might be something to consider. We should be thankful for the blessings that we experience in our country. I'm not, this isn't an anti-American message by any means. I love our country. We should be thankful. We should thank God for the blessings that we have received, but we should also be clear about our faith and that Jesus didn't die for fleeting pleasures, but to save us from the penalty of sin. As big and important as our freedoms are, they can also be an idol. They can be an idol that we end up preferring that distort what it means to follow Jesus. Health, wealth, prosperity, it's no wonder that that heretical, horrible message came from America. And believe me, I am talking to myself here. 
I don't like this message very much. I'm used to my comforts. I'm used to my entertainments. I liked sitting out watching football yesterday. I like to be liked. The thought of more obvious forms of persecution, ones that might cause me physical pain, frighten me. I'm not looking for a fight. But I do pray that if it comes, I will stand strong. Stand strong for Jesus. Stand strong for his gospel, regardless of the consequences. And this is the expectation that Jesus prepares his disciples with. And so we shouldn't assume otherwise for ourselves. We live, let's face it, we live in a post-Christian country. We are a post-Christian country. And unless the gospel goes out and transforms hearts and minds of our culture, which we should pray for, which we should be active in doing, unless that happens, then things will be changing. And if they do change, we must be strong in our faith, with our eyes wide open to what Jesus teaches us. Either way, don't be afraid. We have Jesus. He is sovereign. We have ultimate hope and strength through his Holy Spirit and joy. So don't be afraid. Jesus knows the future of these disciples, and he knows ours as well. And in love, in this farewell discourse, he promises the coming of the Holy Spirit that will equip us. He commands us to love one another. And now he prepares us for the reality of persecution. A major emphasis in his farewell discourse is the Holy Spirit. So let's not forget that no matter what, no matter what, Jesus has not left us as orphans. He hasn't left us as as even disconnected individual branches with an expectation that we're going to bear fruit on our own. No, we have the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and connects us to Jesus. We abide in Christ through the Holy Spirit's work, guiding us and speaking to us through through the written word of God. And the good news that we do, the the good works that we do, they are not our own. They are the fruit of the Spirit. And so when he commands us to love one another, this may may sound shocking, but when he commands us to love one another, we really can. We really can. It's our responsibility to obey him. And if we love him, we'll prioritize this over everything else. But we really can love people, and he's speaking concerning the church, concerning the saints primarily. We really can love people in the church. We really can love those that we disagree with. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. Because of his fruit being worked in our lives. Our love, your love for that person, is not dependent upon that person changing. It's not dependent upon them coming around to your right thinking. And your thinking might be right. 
No, I'm to love because I'm in Christ. I'm to love because the Holy Spirit is at, is at work in me, changing me. It's about him changing me, enabling me to love. And I should know that the Holy Spirit, having this reality, I should know how this Holy Spirit works. He doesn't just zap us. He doesn't just, doesn't just zap us and, and now I'm changed and now I just love everyone. No, he, he changes us through the word of God. And so my obedience to, to love, what it actually means is that I need to dedicate myself to hearing from him, to being in his word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We act in faith. We love in faith. We do good works in faith. Faith comes from hearing and reading and meditating on God's word. We really can't obey Christ any other way. It's only by faith, which is, which is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit equipping us through the Word of God. Truly loving one another is not natural. Truly loving one another is not natural. Just look at your children, brothers and sisters, Look at how they behave. Do they just naturally love each other without any godly instruction? Do they naturally want to share? When one gets a treat or a toy and the other gets nothing, what is the natural tendency? Are they naturally happy for their sibling? Or do they complain and say, where's mine? That's not fair. Let's face it, for us in the church, if loving our brothers and sisters in Christ came naturally, Jesus wouldn't have to command us, and he does command us. He wouldn't have to give us a helper in the Holy Spirit. But because we exist to glorify him, this unnatural action of submitting to his command and loving each other, it brings him glory. It brings him glory because he's the only reasonable explanation for it. And if we are to carry on the loving work of Jesus to a lost world, then that love needs to be genuine. It needs to begin with a a united, loving church, which is a witness to the world that stands out as being unnatural to the world. Strange. But if instead they see us fighting and hating each other like any other religion or group or club, or if they see just normal levels of social politeness, it won't stand out. That's natural. There's nothing special. Nothing that points people to the source of our love, who is Jesus. Let me ask you. Don't you have a sense that for us in America, we're living at a a very big moment in our country's history? I just have that sense, and I imagine you do too. Things are really different. We're at a big moment in our country's history. What I have in mind 
is that now because our culture has so quickly shifted, really quickly shifted in, the, in an unapologetic embrace of sin and, and ungodly thinking, and because we're so polarized and we're so divided, isn't it much easier to imagine a persecution here against Christians? I think a decade ago, I just thought, I just can't even imagine how that would ever happen. And now I think, yeah, I can totally see it happening. And, and I, when I say Christians, I mean Christians who are truly Christians who hold to biblical truth and don't compromise. Because if we compromise, the world system doesn't have any problem with that compromise. I have never felt anything like this in my lifetime. And things will, things will either settle down. Either this is, you know, a lot of times there's this pendulum swing it's up here, and then it just comes back the other way and just kind of balances out. So either that's going on again, or we're approaching, it's more like a we're coming to the edge of the cliff and we're going to plunge over. And if so, we need to prioritize the teaching of Christ. We need to look to and pray for the equipping work of the Holy Spirit like never before. We need to be in God's word like never before. To be strengthened and guided in his truth. And if we are to truly trust Jesus, we need to prioritize the unity of his church. We need to love within the church, hard as that may be. We need to be strong together or we'll never stand the persecution that may be coming our way. Jesus prepares, um, prepares us for who really should hate us. He prepares us for who should really hate us. We're not to hate each other because we're in Christ. But we, we should expect that because we're in Christ, the world will hate us. And again... Nobody likes to be hated, especially when there's no cause for it. And this is really the key statement that Jesus makes. They hated me without cause. So if the world hates us as well, it better be because we remind them of Jesus. And not simply because we deserve it. Because we're being obnoxious or arrogant. No prize in suffering for that. You're just getting what you deserve. It's better that we're hated without cause because this is how they hated Jesus. It may be new for us in America, but rest assured, Jesus tells us that we will be blessed if we suffer, if we are persecuted for his sake. Do a word study through the New Testament on suffering and persecution, and what you'll find are dozens and dozens of verses having to do with persecution and suffering. It's a big topic all over the place, in the Gospels, throughout the epistles. In each case, what you'll find is a promise of blessing. That if it's for Christ's sake, if it's for the sake of his gospel, if it's for the sake of the elect, his church, you will be blessed. It will be worth it. 
Now, I'm not giving any prophecy updates, but if our criteria for the second coming, and people have asked me recently, do you think the Lord's coming again? And I say, well, if the criteria for the second coming is that things will get really bad for us in America, then no. I don't think so. Any quick study of church history will tell you of actual suffering and persecution. Any reading of the voice of the martyrs will show you that Christians are suffering under persecution on other parts of the globe, and they have been for a very long time. Again, what we've experienced in our country's history is really unusual, is really unique, so that we in our comfortable at-homeness are being stirred up is not necessarily a sign of the end, but it may be a wake-up call. It may be that our day is coming, that what is common elsewhere and for many centuries is headed our way. And if so, if so, we'd better be united. We'd better be united in our love for each other. We'd better be in the Word where the Holy Spirit will equip us to handle whatever may come our way. And I don't, it's fearful, right? But it shouldn't be. It's fearful in that we like being comfortable. But our faith is so much bigger than that. Our hope is in Christ. Brothers and sisters around the world deal with this all the time, and their hope and joy is the same as yours. Our hope is in Christ. In closing, I want to I land on a very relevant passage in 1 Peter 3. In fact, I want to recommend this week you just Pick up your Bible, open it to 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 17, and spend some time praying through it. Spend some time pleading with the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and help you. So that's the recommendation for this week. Let me read through it in closing. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 17. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, 
those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. God, we praise you for the many blessings that we enjoy. And we recognize that the problem is not in your blessings, but in our attitude toward them. Lord, open our eyes to any entitlement within us, any wrong expectations of what's normal or what we think we deserve. Lord, thank you for the blessing of our country and the freedoms that enable us to come and worship you. We're grateful, grateful to you, grateful for the many people who have sacrificed so much in order to preserve this gift of yours. And we remember the great threat and sense of evil witnessed 20 years ago this weekend. So we give you praise for the many blessings. Lord, we pray for our leaders and ask that you would open their eyes to sin, that their only hope is in you, that they would turn and look to you in faith. We pray that we will not be a country that continues clinging to darkness and hides from you. We pray that we, as your church, will not be just another divided segment of society, but that we will hear the words of our master and savior and friend, that we will love the saints and be a witness to the world that hates us without cause. Lord, strengthen our faith. Give us a great hunger for your word, that we may do what you've called us to do and bring glory to your great name. We pray in the great and mighty name of Jesus. Amen.